Hello, my friends, and welcome to Season 2 of the Land and Money Podcast. My name is Adam Gates. I am an architect in San Antonio, Texas, and this show is part of my journey to becoming a great architect, uh, where Season 1 was recorded as an appendix to a local housing event I was part of with ULI San Antonio. Um, season 2 really begins to open up to a greater variety in guests and topics and lines of inquiry. It's got a little bit different tone. Um, I'm talking to people from different places uh, that I've met on Twitter or through other professional functions. I don't have a set format or overarching theme really the way we did in season one. So this is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I hope you all enjoy it uh, as much as you did season one and you stick with me. As for pre-episode sponsorship notes, I don't have any sponsors yet. Um, I would like to, if you're interested in being a sponsor, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, anywhere you need to. Uh, But I do owe a deep debt of gratitude to my friends and colleagues in the Urban Land Institute in San Antonio for their support, their encouragement, uh, and their participation. That's where I'm meeting a lot of the guests that you're going to be listening to. Uh, And also, I owe a debt of gratitude to all of you for listening and uh, giving me and my voice and my guests uh, a little bit of your time. So uh, thank you all very much as well. In this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Karina Green, the Associate Vice President for Real Estate, Construction, and Planning at the University of Texas at San Antonio. This is a really interesting conversation for me because Karina gets pretty in-depth into uh, some of the main differences between public and private sector development and everything that she does at UTSA. They've got some big things coming downtown. I think you're going to like this one, folks. Here's Karina Green. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Land and Money Today. Uh, We've got a real treat today. Uh, Karina Green has joined us, the Associate Vice President for real estate construction and planning at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Karina, welcome to the program. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. So, Karina, you started in this role um, just a couple of years ago, kind of right in the middle of COVID. But before that, you've got a really interesting background that uh, led you to this role at the university. Uh, tell us who you are and where you come from. Sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks for asking. So, I. Um... I grew up in in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, a very small town in South Central Pennsylvania. And I fell in love with architecture from a very young age and uh, decided to attend Drexel University in Philadelphia in their two plus four program for architecture. And I obtained a professional degree. It was a six year program, a bachelor of architecture from Drexel University. And I worked in and around the Philadelphia area for a number of years um, through college. The two plus four program was a, a great model to kind of get us into the working environment uh, starting in our second year of college and uh, stayed there until 2002. I actually met my husband in Philadelphia. He was the personal trainer at the gym that I joined and he's from San Antonio, Texas. And he moved back to Texas shortly after we met. And about a year later, I relocated and moved to Texas. So when I was in Pennsylvania, I had a lot of experience working uh, with a couple of different firms up there. Um, One of which I worked with for the longest up there uh, was uh, Kirby Mayerhoff Architects. And we did a lot of work with a small private school, um, uh, Swarthmore College. And I, I really enjoyed working with Swarthmore College. I did a number of dormitory renovations and just academic spaces and enjoyed doing that work. We also did a lot of high-end residential. And then uh, I had dabbled in church design for a while at the last firm I worked for. When I moved here in um, the fall of 2002, um, started working in architecture. And through that, I had the opportunity to meet a number of developers over the years who really became mentors. I just, I love learning. It's something that I continue to do is just seek to learn new things from people that I meet. Um, it's probably why I love the ULL, ULI so much. Uh, Drake Letty was a great mentor to me. He's a, a long-term developer here in San Antonio. Dwight Lee was also a developer. And uh, Bob Drury actually was the one. Uh, he is one of the two brothers. He's 
passed away a number of years ago, but he owned a, a segment of Drury Hotels. And uh, I, I worked in their architecture department, but Bob would come in and he'd sit down and he'd say, so what are you working on? And I'd tell him which project I was working on. I was young. I was probably my late 20s, early 30s. And he'd say, so how much are you going to spend on that renovation? And I'd tell him and he'd say, what's our return on that investment? I'd say, well, I don't know, Bob, that's a different department. And uh, that always got him triggered. So he started working uh, with me on how to do performance and how to look at the investment that we would get back out of it. Um, he was a interesting, interesting teacher. So that's kind of ultimately how I ended up getting into the development side of things um, I, that I made the ultimate leap when um, I was working with Powers Brown Architecture. I had opened their San Antonio office and I had one client that I had been working with and he became ill and I was asked to join. His son came in to sort of unwind the partnerships and rebuild the company. And uh, I had been working with this gentleman for a number of years. And so I guess I was a trusted partner and that really kind of catapulted me into just fully focusing on the development side and, and out of the design side. So I guess that's kind of the background there. Interesting. Uh, I love your emphasis on relationships. Um, you know, great example with ULI, obviously you and I, that's how you and I met. Um, and, you know, you mentioned um, in a different conversation, how that really has kind of shaped your career and put you where you are now. So um, after, after working on the architecture side, you actually transitioned to working for pretty large scale local developer, if I remember right. Um, and you were involved a little bit in the hemisphere project downtown. I was, yeah. So I, I left um, the company that I was with, uh, Presidian Hotels and joined Zachary Corporation, um, which one of their arms is Zachary Hospitality. And I was able to work with one of my most favorite mentors ever, Renee Garcia. And Renee and um, I worked on the development team when I, when I started at Zachary, nobody really told me about Hemisphere and that they were even pursuing Hemisphere. And uh, so I joined and Renee said, oh, we were just shortlisted for this giant P3 partnership. So we're going to start working on that. And uh, ah. so <laughs> that was kind of how I got uh, introduced into the Hemisphere project. And we had a lot of fun working on that. It was a very large, complicated project that is is still moving forward. So I'm excited to see where that one goes. That's cool. And so a lot of time on, a bit of time on the design side, um, some really some really focused time on the private side of a very large, very well-funded, uh, historic, long-term P3 project in Hemisphere. And after a little while, how did that get you into the, uh, into the public side? How did that turn into your job at the university? Um, you know, I think really it, it was more around... Um, looking for new opportunities. And uh, we had some transition um, at Zachary and the, the pandemic was, you know, on our heels. And uh, there was an opportunity I uh, started, I had the opportunity to meet Veronica Salazar, the CFO and uh, Senior Vice President for Business Affairs uh, through um, a, a mutual connection. And uh, actually uh, Randy Smith gave me a call and said, hey, I think you should meet Veronica. And so Veronica and I had coffee and we just really hit it off. And she said, okay, so we can meet next week and you can tell me how you're going to come work for me. And I said, oh, yeah, time out. You know, I'm not ready to really transition yet. And she said, no, uh, I really need you on my team over here. And, you know, ultimately, to be honest, when I was working on um, Hemisphere, I just fell more and more in love with our urban core and really got connected through the ULI, as we mentioned, with a number of people here in San Antonio that I admire and just really realized that San Antonio has so many passionate people that just want to pour into it. And we're unique from other cities as I travel with the ULI to different cities and I'm involved in the placemaking National Council 
product council and uh, just talking to some of my colleagues and other ULI chapters, we really have a unique sort of way that we approach development in San Antonio compared to some other cities. You know, we, we do need to bring and, and attract outside money and outside developers, but, but there's so many people that want to partner in the city that live here and love the culture and the history and, and the experience and want to see it grow that when Dr. Amy came to UTSA, you know, UTSA was, from my perspective, uh, this quiet university just kind of doing their thing that, uh, again, from my perspective, wasn't really engaging much with the community necessarily. And they were chugging along. They were growing. Um, you know, now that I'm in-house and can look at our historical statistics, they were definitely growing. But the focus hadn't really been on downtown and really partnering to how can how can the university impact the growth and sustainability of San Antonio? And uh, when Dr. Amy was brought in in 2017, he, he kind of collided with our downtown and said, I'm, I'm excited about what I can do and where I can you know, plug UTSA into the growth of downtown. And so I started kind of paying attention. And actually, I remember in my conversation with uh, Randy Smith, I, I think I told him, you know, working for the public sector wasn't really something I wanted to do in my career. I thought maybe, you know, I'll come work for Weston and you can just let me volunteer my time. And he laughed and said, no, you need to go work for the university. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, it'll be fun. We can work together. We can just, you know, build out downtown and change the way that downtown looks together. And um, so we're trying to do that now. And really that's, that's why I transitioned to, to UTSA. And when I spoke with, with David, when I was leaving, he was super excited. He said, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be sad to see you go for us. He said, but you know, I just, I think you'd be great in this role and I'm excited about where this might take you and, and what it means for San Antonio. So he was super supportive of it and uh, just saw him a couple of weeks ago at the groundbreaking and um, had a nice interaction with them. and. So I'm excited to see where, where they go with Hemisphere. I'm excited to see where UTSA goes with all of our downtown development and everything we're doing out on main campus too, just supporting where Dr. Amy wants to take our university. That's awesome. You really have gotten in at an exciting time. And I'm going to fill in some gaps for the audience as, as I understand it. And you can, uh, you can correct anything or add anything that I might leave out. Um, Dr. Amy is Taylor Amy, who is the current president of UTSA. Um, I forget how long he's been there. It hasn't been all that long, five or six years, I believe. Yeah. And he joined in 2017. Got it. So, you know, when he took over, he was loud and clear about his ambitions for elevating UTSA to a just a higher level, more high functioning institution. Um, as of, I think, this past week or so, UTSA is now a tier one research institute, uh, which is a giant achievement for a university. Um, so, you know, as soon as you mentioned San Antonio having lots of individuals who just really, who are really ambitious and really want to see the city succeed on all fronts. Um, Taylor Amy came to mind immediately because he's been a spearhead of all of this. Um, Absolutely. And just a little bit more context. And this is, we can actually, I think, kind of get into some of the meat and potatoes of this conversation is that UTSA is an interesting institution in that it has a large sort of influence footprint on San Antonio and South Texas, but in terms of its, in terms of its sort of urban presence, it's been a little bit lacking. It was um, when the university was expanded uh, in earlier decades of the 20th century, um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the main campus was moved out to the outskirts of the city. Um, so it has been kind of disconnected from the urban core. And then they, you know, they developed a, uh, a small campus 
downtown that houses uh, a few different programs, I think some business and the architecture school in uh, some buildings that they purchased. And now when Dr. Amy came in, he really decided that UTSA needed a larger downtown presence, that it needed to integrate itself with downtown San Antonio and emulate some of the larger, more urban universities that have done uh, similar things. UTSA commissioned a master plan to be done to guide this expansion. Some of the work has already started, and now you're in charge of making all of that happen. <laughs> There's a team of us. It's not just me, but yes. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so I guess my first sort of Matt, just general curiosity is having gone from public or from private to public, what are the biggest differences? What are the, especially in terms of, um, and maybe even start with, you know, return on investment. That's a very different conversation. And I think a lot of the structure and, and cash flow and organization beneath that is affected by this idea that um, you're measuring return on investment at a university much differently than you do in the private sector. That's correct. Yeah. You know, and that, that was a, a big thing the, to take a step back and talk about how our projects are funded, I think really rolls into the return on investment too. And the difference in it um, was just kind of learning our funding sources and our strategy. And, and ultimately at the end of the day, um, we're not, we're, we're a nonprofit, we're a not-for-profit. You know, we, our measure of success, our return on our investment is our student success. And so we will have models where they may be revenue generating. Um, we may do a land lease that would provide revenue. And whereas um, in a private deal, when you have an equity partner and then you go and you get your, your debt, you know, typically, and, and it's been two years and a, a global pandemic hit. So I know that the metrics might be different from when I was focused on stuff, but, you know, generally you had to do a, a financial pro forma to vet everything out because ultimately you're putting a pitch book together to go make the argument to your equity, your, your investors that I'm gonna be able to get you a, a 16, 18 plus 20% IRR, you know, return on, on the investment. And so the money that was coming into the deal, they were expecting to get a return on their investment. And then your debt, you know, your bank wasn't going to give you 100% of it. They were going to give you 60, 70, maybe 80, depending on the time period that you were trying to uh, fund something. And they also had a debt service coverage ratio. And so you had to factor all of those things in. And then your, your exit cap rates, you know, I don't necessarily have to study those things. We will study those things specific to... Um, our, our housing, if you will, just to make sure that we can cover our debt service. And, and the way that that works is um, the UT system actually will provide um, revenue um, financing for those types of auxiliary projects. So housing, and then all of the housing goes into one bucket as we pay back the debt that we use to build those, but it's all internally funded through UT system. And so I don't necessarily have to show a, a return. I just need to be able to pay back my loan, right? And so, sure. so when I look at a revenue generating from that capacity, and then if I look at, we're working on a few public-private type partnerships um, where we'll probably do them through land leaks mechanisms and get mixed-use development. Some of them may fully support some of our student experience. Uh, we have a project on main campus called Roadrunner Village that will have some housing, it will have some academic space, but it'll also be a mixed-use development, hopefully with some retail and, and different things uh, that are in there. And that's really to also create a student experience. But any, any revenue that we might make off of the ground lease will be poured back into the university that will go into expanding our built environment um, and creating programs for student success. So at the end of the day, everything that we're doing is just modeled on the pillars of 
um, what our president is trying to do, which is student success and becoming a great research institution. And, and so that's really our main, uh, our main measure of success. So that leads me to a question about time. You know, you mentioned the time element of a more traditional private loan structure, which affects what most people can and will build, you know, because it needs to get paid off in a certain amount of time. Uh, As an institution such as you are, you've got a completely different uh, outlook and attitude about time, at least I would, I would think you would, um, because there's no question that, especially with particular types of facilities, there's no question that you are going to continue owning these buildings and properties and facilities in perpetuity. So does that allow you to um, either maybe spend more money or spend money differently so that the experience that you're trying to create can endure for a longer period of time? I mean, take a, you know, the difference between a five-year building and a hundred-year building. Um, I think a university has more interest in a hundred-year building than a typical developer would. Um, And so with the things that you're looking at right now, uh, how does that time element play into your designing and decision-making and um, budget analysis? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we do. So our standards, we have um, we have state regulated standards that come from UT system, and then we have internal standards. And uh, so we do have to take all of our projects. When you're looking at a major capital project, anything 10 million and over uh, is required to go to our board of regents for approval. And we do have to bring to them uh, research that we've done uh, that support that we're we're within the cost per square foot of a total project cost of projects of its same type. And we have uh, departments up at UT system that um, do all this research and and they have a a really great tool that we can get into and do a lot of that research and and pull up comps uh, so that we can support that, that we are um, building something within uh, our peers, right? That if, if somebody else is building a cybersecurity building that I'm looking at, the other institutions that might be doing this, but yeah, our standards are a little bit higher. You know, we're gonna we're gonna tend to use higher quality uh, materials, uh, a, a lot more masonry than maybe a private developer might use, because at the end of the day, we are going to be not only keeping our building in our portfolio for many years, uh, 50, 75, 100 years, um, we're also occupying most of them, and so uh, our standards are going to be a little bit higher. As far as time, um, I've been at the university two years, and I think the the speed to get to market can vary. Um, our processes on the front end can slow us down a little bit, just trying to put our, our financing together and do our planning, hire, you know, hiring everyone has to go through a competitive process. And so that's been something that I've been learning over the past two years are are all of the processes that we need to go through um, to comply with that competitive regulated process. Um, But we also are a state entity. And so um, we don't have to go through city permitting. Now I have a department uh, under my overview that's plan review and inspections. and, And so we have inspectors on site that are not just looking for code compliance, but they're also uh, inspecting for quality control. And so that process can uh, be something that some of the private industry contractors need to get used to. Um, but we've been adjusting how we've been looking at, at supporting that internally to try to make sure that it's all communicated up front. And the key really is just communication. You know, this is when our inspector wants to see everything. It's going to look a little different than maybe when the city inspectors come in and look at stuff because we are looking at quality control and of course, safety, right? And so um, it can vary, honestly, uh, the project downtown from the time we procured our our design build team to the time we're going to deliver it and move into it is the fastest I've ever seen a project go. And so um, 
it can be slow to get started. I am experiencing some of, some of that, um, you know, trying to get some of these new projects out of the ground. But what, what I've experienced is once we get going, man, we can really, we can move pretty quickly as long as we're partnering um, with, with great contractors and architects and just internal, you know, all the people that we need to partner with internally. Um, we're really streamlining a lot of that. And so, you know, it varies. It's it's different, slower in some areas and faster in other areas. But at the end of the day, it's probably about the same speed. Um, but we, we do end up with a probably our, our quality standards are a little higher than than your private industry. Right. And when you talk about the project downtown, you're talking about your new, is it complete yet, um, cybersecurity and data science center? Yeah, it's the School of Data Science and the National Security Collaboration Center. And uh, we we selected our architect. Uh, well, it was actually our design build firm. Um, the final selection was made in July of 2020, and we will hit substantial completion this July and, uh, and do our move in and make ready and everything. And we'll be teaching classes there by spring semester of 23. So, so everyone will be in there using it by January. That's amazing. I mean, folks, you guys can Google um, the name of that school and find some pictures. I mean, this is a very nice urban state-of-the-art facility uh, in downtown San Antonio. Um, beautiful design by Overland Partners here from San Antonio, uh, partnered with the design build firm. Um, so if I, if I may, I'd like to use that one as a, as a case study for some other questions is now having achieved this tier one research institution status. Um, that has a couple of things that come with it. One, in, as far as I understand, uh, there's more money in that. Uh, being a tier one research institution allows you to raise more money, to have more research projects um, moving and being funded at one time. And so there's a there is a cash flow element to that status. Is that correct? There is. That doesn't necessarily mean that the cash flow goes into our capital building projects, but certainly does impact it. And there are components to it that go into our capital building project, um, you know, pot of money. Um, but really, you're right. I mean, being able to build these state-of-the-art buildings like we're building with the School of Data Science and National Security Collaboration Center um, is part of how we attract and, and really the reason that this building is located right in the heart of downtown is so that we can hopefully try to be a catalyst for helping to grow that industry. Graham Weston and, and others have been really focused on the tech industry and building sort of that tech corridor downtown. And we wanted to be right in the heart of it so that our students were colliding with real life people to sort of accelerate their classroom to career path. But also on the research side of it, um, General Guy Walsh has been out there. Uh, he's the director of the NSCC. And I mean, he's just, he and his team are working um, on these research partnerships with industry partners that wanna come in and just research and collaborate and be part of what the university is doing from a research front. And these, these companies, pour into research dollars that just get generated and circulated into that, that research category. And so um, when that money comes in, it, it, in, it enables us to be able to, to increase our level of research capacity. So it's really exciting the way that it all works together and, and the way that we can impact um, one another, both from a built environment and from the, the end use product of what's happening in those buildings. Right. Well, in a, you know, starting out, um, you know, it's obviously not your first building downtown. There's, there is a campus downtown, but this is the first building, the first new building and the first one of the new master plan. And to kick it off with a technology-based building, which has within it, I'm sure, to facilitate that, a ton of technology. And thinking about the what, what would I call the obsolescence cycle of a lot of the technology that has to be in that building. And so I'm wondering as a, as a long-term forward-looking institution uh, and now a tier one uh, research institution 
and the need within all of that to create and maintain state of the art facilities. Um, when does state of the art change? And do you have to look forward and be ready to make significant upgrades to your brand new, beautiful building in, you know, five years, 10 years, just to stay to, in order to stay competitive in the environment that you're operating in? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that that's going to be a component. I mean, it's a component for everyone, right? I mean, the moment you buy technology, it becomes obsolete. We, we honestly focused on that um, at Zachary Hospitality, you know, when we were looking at, at the hotel component over at Hemisphere, you know, to be cutting edge, you have to, you have to procure and buy stuff for your building a year in advance. Well, by the time it actually delivers, is it cutting edge, right? And so, um, so that, that's an ongoing um, technology problem that all of us are going to experience. But yeah, you know, as we're looking for forward to occupying this building and, and utilizing the building, um, we're trying to design these buildings to be as open and flexible as possible, right? So that, so that it's easy and we try to think through making it easier to go in and, and upgrade and change and flex with the times. And, and we've seen that um, just through the course of this project with the pandemic. Um, the the changes in work modalities, not just for the university, but you know, for every business out there, and our, our student learning modalities, and so we've been incorporating a lot of that just flexible building, and we actually upgraded our technology package in this building to account for that high flex environment where we want to be able to have people in the building teaching in person and people being able to teach virtually and, and use the space as a collision space. And so we're trying to keep things as flexible and, and ahead of the curve as possible to make it easy to adjust in the future. And I'm sure that, you know, over time, there's going to be a, an interplay between or some, some direct relationship between the funding dollars that are coming in and uh, the dollars that have to get spent to keep to keep facilities going. I, I mean, I would imagine that a program that's bringing in more money might receive more money for construction and updates and things might be allocated to a program that's doing well versus one that isn't. Uh, or maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it all just goes into one big pool of money and um is distributed in some other way. Uh, how does that work? You know, I'm, I'm learning okay. a lot about how that works, to be honest. And um, you may invite Veronica Salazar to be on your show sometime, and she can tell you a little bit more about the inner workings um, of, of how all that happens. But I, I know that, you know, generally institutional funds go in and they go through our business affairs, our CFO, um, and, and she works with all the different teams and her financing teams and, uh, you know, that permanent university funding that comes through and, and we've got, um, you know, funding that is for the academic side and then we've got auxiliary funding and so auxiliary can be revenue generating that gets poured back into supporting some of the maintenance so for instance we're going to have a cafe in this building and the money generated from that will just be pulled in to to maintain the space basically on a long-term basis you know so there there are different types there are different colors of money um and and yeah, it, good way to put it and it depends on what color it is where you can spend it and yeah. so that's all regulated all the way up to the state of Texas. And then it's, you know, our, our financial team's, um, you know, job to kind of allocate that as appropriately to keep us all moving forward. And, and then, of course, you know, the research dollars and, and things that can come in um, can be allocated to help sustain and upgrade the building. Um, you know, so there's, there's different ways that that's handled. But yeah, again, it, it all comes down to the color of the money. Right. And I was on, when I was at UT Austin, I spent a little bit of time as a student on the faculty building advisory committee. And, you know, one thing that I learned there was that at that institutional level, the, the distance into the future that you're looking at all of the different projects that you've got sort of on the list in order to be built and funded is 
so much longer than any other part of the private sector. You know, you've got mm-hmm. a 15, 20 year outlook of things that, you know, a lot of them might just be maybes, but um, there is a list and usually a long list and money is allocated long in advance. Yeah. And, and to that point, we do have processes in place that annually we are required to uh, upload a list of our potential projects down the road uh, to the coordinating board, the the higher education coordinating board in Texas. And that's called an MP1 list. And that's just basically every project that we could dream of building over the next 10 to 20 years goes on that list, right? And we update it annually and we move things up and down in the priority level. And then, um, you know, when when projects become um, closer to being funded, uh, then we start working with the Board of Regents and, and getting it on the CIP and telling them how we're going to be spending the money. And then we have to go back for approval once we have it sort of finally designed and we're ready to roll into construction. And that's when uh, any state regulated funds would come to us, uh, puff funding, TRB money, things of that nature. You know, there's different requirements that we have to go through to get that money uh, allocated into the project. But yeah, it's, a, it's an annual process of updating that because if it's not on that MP1, it becomes a lot more difficult for us to turn it into a real project when we start to find our money. So we never know when a donor might come in and say, I want to give you know, $20 million to a performing arts center. or And, and then that may change our priority of how we're looking at things. You know, right. and, Yeah. But you needed, you needed that performing arts center on the list in order for it to happen. Exactly. exactly. Uh, well, and so speaking of all the different things that you do uh, in the email I sent you for, to prepare for this. One of the questions I asked was, you know, project types. And you basically said pretty much everything, uh, hotel, hotel <laughs> small office, big office, academic, residential, mixed use, in, uh, industri- industrial, like, I mean, you, you athletic, uh, athletic facilities, performing arts centers. I mean, you guys are, in, you know, in a sense, you are a developer working in every market sector at the same time as owner builder and manager mm-hmm. um how do you have to how do you have to organize your teams in order to be even moderately knowledgeable and proficient in all those different areas yeah so it it requires a lot of collaboration and just partnerships. We have people on our teams that have backgrounds and expertise in different areas. We may reach out. We use a lot of consultant firms. So, uh, you know, we'll bring in uh, a consulting firm that specializes in a specific area to help us. Um, We lean on one another and, and we just bring a lot to the table. And so it's impossible for any one of us to be an expert in, in any one of those. Um, you know, we don't have any hotels, and that's probably my main area of expertise uh, in in the in the um, industry. But you know, as we start to look to that, we just we lean on one another. And you know, for instance, uh, Veronica Salazar, again, our CFO, she came to uh, UTSA, um, and in her some of her prior experience, she worked uh, for the University of California, um, Marquette, and essentially built out that entire campus under a P3 model. So she brings a a wide experience range with P3 from from focusing on it at the public sector side. Um, I don't bring a wide range, but I have worked uh, through my work at Hemisphere on P3 projects from the private sector, from the private side. And so when you bring those two together, her and I have some great brainstorming sessions, just trying to think creatively about how to do this and what partners we need to bring in and and you, you just, you can't do it alone. You definitely need to collaborate. Absolutely. And so I think the last topic or collection of topics I want to jump into is kind of looking at the, looking at the larger scale, um, comparing perhaps a, you know, large consolidated campus to a spread out downtown urban campus where for the latter you know in this downtown campus you guys really are the big institutional change maker on that side of downtown san antonio for anybody that's might be listening that's not from downtown san antonio um the west side of downtown has been kind of sleepy for lack of a better word for a long time um we've got a bunch of initiatives and major development players who are 
actively trying to change that. We've got a big uh, linear park project called San Pedro Creek. Uh, we've got UTSA downtown. We've got players like um, Weston Urban and to a certain extent, you know, folks like Silver Ventures and Hemisphere who are investing a lot to transform our downtown. But you guys are really jumping in early and making a big commitment and a big investment. And I can only imagine that in a conversation about partnerships, there's a bit of a public-public partnership that has to happen between University of Texas and the city of San Antonio in order to start crafting and creating this experience that you want students to have in an urban campus. Um, so to frame that as a question, how do you partner with an entity like the city of San Antonio and the necessary institutions within that to set expectations for what you want this urban experience to be like for the students on your campus, since you are one of these major investors? You know, it takes a lot of just meetings. It takes a lot of talking to one another and, and collaborating. We've been in discussions. I know Dr. Amy meets uh, regularly with um, our city leaders. I know that, that he meets with um, our, our stakeholders are in the private industry, like, Graham Weston and, and others, and just really trying to collaborate and work together. Um, you know, we, we work a lot with Centro. Veronica sits on the, the board of Centro and through uh, the work at ULI and my engagement with the ULI, just trying to, to use the professional resources that we have to make sure that, that none of us are doing things in a silo. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that as, um, as we move forward, there's been a lot of conversation about um, teaming with and, and being part of a group that maybe, maybe Centro leads or, or maybe the ULI leads, but just looking at uh, having somebody lead efforts to, co to collaborate, to bring everyone together, to sit down in a room quarterly and say, okay, how can we help one another? UTSA, what students are you bringing downtown? Weston Urban, Pearl, David Adelman, you know, all the folks that are pouring into downtown. What are you guys bringing to the table? How can we support one another? Um, because at the end of the day, uh, we just want to be a great partner. And the, San, the city of San Antonio has been a tremendous partner to the university. And, and we hope that we're being the same, that we're good neighbors, we're good partners. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of that. I mean, we saw it just on the collaboration of of buying and building um, on our new track of land on De La Rosa. Uh, two of the lots are city owned, one is owned by the county. And so we do a lot of collaboration uh, between um, support from the city and the county and UTSA and how we work together and just how we make sure that everything's being um, thought about for not only now, but future expansion, protecting our historic, um, uh, you know, gems in downtown we've got a lot of those and just working with uh, thc um we're, we're adjacent to casa navarro so we spend a lot of time just collaborating with them like how can we be a good neighbor what can we do to make sure that you guys are successful and um I, we're going to see a lot more of this with our southwest school of arts uh, acquisition and and how we're going to be collaborating and partnering with the city of san antonio to continue on the mission and expand upon that in the arts community over there. That is going to be a huge opportunity for the city and UTSA and, and the private community to really just partner and team and look at how do we work together to make this sustainable, to build upon it and to make it something great. And I'm excited to be part of it. I think, you know, we, we have a lot of the moving pieces already in play. We have a lot of great people sitting uh, at the table who are passionate and, and wanting to be change agents in, in moving this stuff forward. So if I can, that was all wonderful, by the way. Uh, I'm looking at a, over on, on my screen, you can't see it. I'm looking at a Google Maps photo and uh, just making sure I got this right because the Google Maps a little old. You are on the site um, where the jail used to be right right on san pedro creek dolorosa 
we, we will be. We're across the creek. The School of Data Science is actually yeah. on the property across the creek from where the old jail was. Okay, so it's so it's east. Uh, what I know they tore down the old jail. Do you know what's mm -hmm. going there? That will be our Innovation Entrepreneurship and Careers building. So that is our next project. We were awarded uh, some funding through the TRB process this year, and we're working on identifying um, the remaining uh, funding necessary, and we'll probably move forward um, into planning and design later this year, um, working with uh, our academic um, team and partners and just making sure that, that we're all collaborating on that one. So that's our next gotcha. academic building downtown. Excellent. And so if I may, I'd like to drill down into one particular topic, which is uh, the pedestrian experience downtown, which uh, you are now a big uh, both stockholder and stakeholder in. Um, and for again, for anybody who doesn't know this, we got this big San Pedro Creek project. And so kind of in one spot and at least and in the stretch of road just between your new data science center and the main campus you've got two or three blocks of urban street you've got the san pedro creek which is which will be city of san antonio partnership you've got the san pedro creek pedestrian experience uh, which is a partnership with bear county or a relationship with bear county um, you've got TxDOT where you have to cross under I-10 to get to the main campus. And in between there, you've got a lot of private ownership and private investments who are both stakeholders and stockholders in the pedestrian experience in front of their properties. Are you yet in conversations with all of these different parties to talk about how all of this is necessarily going to change the streetscape of San Antonio and of downtown San Antonio, at least in this little area. And um, what are those, what are those conversations like? I mean, is anybody, you know, no specifics necessary, um, but is there any friction? I mean, is there anybody that doesn't want to see a more beautiful street um, connecting your main downtown campus with your new buildings? Uh, you know, we are absolutely in those conversations uh, as um, one of the first things that I attended before I even started my new role was uh, a, um, a brainstorming charrette uh, placemaking session uh, that the university hosted and had partners, public, private, all the stakeholders in the area attend to um, work through what do we want the experience to be, the, the walkable experience and, and the, the, the visitor to San Antonio, the resident to San Antonio, the student, what are the services that need to be provided? How, how do they get to and from? Um, we brought in uh, Phil Myrick to help facilitate that conversation. That was uh, right before the pandemic. And then uh, we did a, a number of smaller visioning sessions virtually uh, as we designed the School of Data Science with a lot of the same stakeholders. And then just as we sort of, um, we're getting close to the end of the process uh, through legislation and wanted to start just thinking about um, just the, the De La Rosa block itself uh, with Western Urban and the Continental Hotel and you've got the county with um, them trying to analyze what they're gonna use the annex building for, and you've got the School of Data Science building coming online and our new building. And so we hosted another just big visioning session and um, included the Friends of Casa Navarra. We included um, you know, a lot of the business owners along De La Rosa and just, again, had Phil Myrick come in and, and host a dialogue about, uh, Phil does this great um, breadcrumbs demonstration of, of how you pull people through an urban core and, and, and what makes people want to move from place to place. And so we definitely do a lot of collaboration and, uh, and there's a lot of excitement around just, just figuring out what that looks like together. Obviously working with Centro um, will be the first, I believe first building delivered within the Zona Cultural and making sure that we're aligning with their vision 
for the sidewalk and the streetscape and everything that goes in place there. And so we do a lot of alignment. We have monthly meetings uh, with the city of San Antonio and uh, the public works department and their special teams just to make sure that, that the university is in line and uh, aligned and engaged with the direction the city wants to, to go and vice versa. So there's a lot of collaboration that, that takes place to make sure that we're all fitting in and, and being good neighbors and supporting one another. Well, that's awesome. I mean, this is obviously uh, very, very exciting um, for anybody who listened to any of the other podcasts. Uh, I recently spoke to uh, Reeves Craig from Weston Urban. And just to give everybody a little bit of context, uh, some of the projects Reeves was talking about are literally across the street from the area that we're at right now. And most of the rest of them are no more than two or three blocks away. So, uh, and also talked to Ed Cross in one episode, uh, his project Vistana, which was the first big uh, sort of modern residential project in downtown San Antonio is also a couple of blocks away. So there's a whole lot going on down here and we'll do a different podcast episode at some point, just about the pedestrian experience in San Antonio and, and how we wrestle with that. But the last thing that I wanted to, uh, I wanted to mention with you is that I am actually, well, I'm very excited about all of this, by the way, I think it's an exciting time to be here. Uh, and I'm also oddly um, happy to sacrifice the very first thing I ever designed and had built, uh, which is a little addition to the architecture school building that is 100% going to get torn down in the next few years to build all these big, new, beautiful facilities. But that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to let it happen. We've made no plans with the Monterey uh, building right now. Oh, good. My little, my little cafe at the Monterey, it'll, uh, it will survive at least a little while longer. Um, well, Karina, uh, Thank you for your time today so much. It's been great having you on the show. I always give guests an opportunity for a call to action. So is there anything at all that uh, you would like to have the audience do or see or find or learn uh, following this episode today? You know, I, I think my call to action uh, is just to make sure that if you're involved, if you're not getting downtown, get downtown, familiarize yourself with all the exciting things that our city has to offer, but I'm pretty sure Reeves offered that up as his call to action. So uh, my main one is just, if it hasn't come across, just collaborate, do stuff in partnership with one another, get together and, and work together because that's the way that we're going to impact San Antonio is when we're all working together towards a unified front. So I guess that would be my, my main call to action. Amen. Thank you, Karina. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yes, ma'am. That's all we've got for today's show, everybody. Thank you again for joining me. Uh, and if you haven't found me already, uh, look me up on Facebook. You can find the show on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Twitter. Not on TikTok yet. Uh, maybe someday. Uh, find me, uh, join the conversation, and let me know if there's anything that you'd like to hear that you haven't heard already. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye-bye.